Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Season 2, Episode 7, 1903-04 vs England. Blame it on the Bosey. The most successful Australian team in history finally returned home after eight months away, arriving two weeks before Christmas. Across their 45 games in both England and South Africa, they had only been defeated twice. They were welcomed home with a match against a 13 from New South Wales in Sydney. There, they received their payment for the tour, with the £550 fee being supplemented by a further 250 for partaking in the South Africa visit. Despite what equated to a fee of 130000 Australian dollars in 2023, it was not enough to save Sid Gregory from bankruptcy, as his sports store had been poorly managed in his absence, leading to him having to take a job as a clerk for the water board. The Sheffield Shield season began on December 19, with New South Wales travelling to Adelaide to play South Australia. Joe Darling had returned to his Tasmanian farm and played no part in the season, leaving the South Australian captaincy to Clem Hill. New South Wales won the first match and would go undefeated across the season, winning their second consecutive shield. Their test quality top three of Duff, Trumper and Captain Monty Noble dominated the run scoring charts, scoring seven centuries between them and averaging over 50 apiece. They were well supported by the bowling of Howe, who took 26 wickets to lead all comers. Victoria won both their matches against South Australia, but they were missing a key performer, with 35-year-old Hugh Trumbull deciding to retire from first-class cricket, having begun his career in 1887. Meanwhile, Lord Hawke had organised a tour of an English side to New Zealand. Hawke himself ended up being unable to tour, having broken his collarbone, leaving leadership up to Trinidad-born Pelham Plum Warner, who had already played two tests against South Africa in 1899. Most of the remaining side was of lesser county players, but the team included Frederick Fane, who would make his test debut in 1905, and Bernard Bosanquet. After two easy victories against New Zealand representative 11s to finish their tour, Hawkside ventured across Australia to play first-class matches against Victoria, New South Wales and South Australia. They were joined by Albert Trott, who had been coaching in New Zealand for the matches in Australia. Against the tougher opposition, Hawkside struggled. After taking a first-innings lead against Victoria, a second-innings collapse saw the English lose by seven wickets. The tour then progressed to Sydney to play New South Wales. Hawkside bowled New South Wales out for 144, with Trot taking 6 for 88. In response, Hawkside made 282, with Bosanquay scoring 52. In New South Wales' second innings, Duff and Trump have started well, racing to 72 before Warner turned to Bosanquay, the sixth bowler used. Bosanquay's first two balls to Trump were conventional leg breaks. The third was a wrong and clean bowled the great batsman for 37. Bosanquay claimed this to be the first such delivery bowled in Australia. New South Wales then collapsed to 7 for 175, with Bosanquay taking a further four wickets before centuries from Duff and Hopkins saw the game peter out into a draw. The third game against South Australia saw the English lose by 97 runs, despite forcing South Australia to follow on. People are already talking of the possibilities of the Bosie, or the Wrongan, or the Googly, depending on who you talk to. Charles Bannerman, who umpired some of the games in New Zealand, said to Warner that Bosanquay must be on the next Test Tour of Australia, as a wrong would be effective on the hard Australian wickets. However, there were questions over Bosanquay's consistency, and some Australians felt that the threat of the wrong was overstated. In fact, the name wrong was a disparaging term, as it was Australian slang used for people like criminals, divorcees and homosexuals, all considered deviants among the social standards of the time. Meanwhile, preparations were underway to bring the next English Test side to Australian shores. 
As I had on the previous tour, the Melbourne Cricket Club Secretary Ben Wardle approached Archie McLaren to bring another side to Australia in 1903-04. McLaren asked for this to be pushed back to the following year, as he knew that top bowlers Barnes and Lockwood were not available for selection. When Wardle insisted the tour proceed in 03-04, McLaren pulled out of the venture. Wardle then approached Lords and the Marlebone Cricket Club to organise a touring party. After negotiations that included the visitors receiving 50% of all gate takings and at least three rest days before each test, Lords agreed to proceed. They approached Plum Warner, having just led a side through Australia, to captain the team, which would be attempting to defeat Australia for the first time in five series. The approach was controversial, as Warner wasn't even the captain of his county side, Middlesex, at the time, but the MCC batted away criticism, believing they had their man. Many players opted out, Jessup, Jackson and Fry among them. The team chosen was a mix of experience and first-timers to Australia. Those who had made the trip before included Hayward, Tildesley, Hurst, Braun, and wicketkeeper Lilly. Wilford Rhodes, who had been prevented from touring by Yorkshire in 0102, made the trip. They were joined by seven players yet to make their test debut. Batsman Reg Foster, who rejected the offer to tour in 0102 due to business commitments, was now free to make the trip. Joined by fast bowler Arthur Fielder, batsman Albert Knight, all-rounders Ted Arnold and Albert Ralph, as well as backup wicketkeeper Bert Strudwick. The finals following the tour went to the man Warner expected to be his trump card, Bernard Bosanquet. Warner's team, the first to be labelled under the soon-to-be-familiar moniker of the MCC, rather than the individual that organised the side, left England following the completion of the county season, arriving in Australia in late October. Warner made team spirit a big focus of his leadership, going as far as to book the amateurs and professionals in the same hotels, as opposed to separate accommodation as had happened previously. As such, he had a united group that was aiming to be the first English side to regain the Ashes in Australia since Ivo Bly did so back in 1882-83. The tour started like so many others with the match against South Australia in Adelaide. The English, who landed five days before the match, arrived as a row between George Giffen and John Creswell of the South Australian Cricket Association was taking place. The two had been arguing about the amount of pay Giffen wanted to play in the match, with Giffen demanding £10 rather than the offered 5 in a sign that player power was waning, Cressel held firm on the association's original offer, with Giffen relenting to play only as a courtesy to the touring English and donating his fee to the Adelaide Children's Hospital. The 44-year-old Giffen had little impact in the drawn match, which was dominated by centuries to Hayward and Clem Hill, who saved the game after the South Australians were made to follow on. Giffen only played one further match for South Australia that season, which would end a first-class career that had lasted for 26 years and see the great all-rounder score 11,758 runs and take 1,022 wickets, one of only four Australians to complete the feat of 10,000 runs and 1,000 wickets in first-class cricket, and the only one who did so without playing for an English county side. The English proceeded to Victoria, where they faced the state team at the MCG. The Victorian featured former Australian captain Harry Trott, playing his first first-class match since 1901. He had little impact, however, as the English won a thumping victory by the innings and 71 runs, with Wilfred Rhodes taking eight wickets for the match. The result was then followed by another innings victory, this time against the New South Wales side, with six wickets to Rhodes in the first innings, followed by four to Bosanquay in the second, giving the visitors the edge. The final first-class match before the first test saw the English face Queensland, featuring Indigenous fast bowler Albert Henry, considered by some to be the fastest bowler in the world. They won by six wickets despite trailing by 27 runs on the first innings, with five wickets to Braun bowling the home side out for 91 in their second innings. With three consecutive victories, the English went into the first test of the SCG with great confidence. The Australians would have a new captain for the series, with disciplinarian Monty Noble, New South Wales captain, taking over from Joe Darling. 
The rest of the team was made up of experienced test players with Duff, Trumper, Hill, Armstrong, Hopkins, Howe, Gregory, Laver, Kelly and Saunders all making up the side. The big absence for the Australians was the lack of an out-and-out fast bowler. With Ernie Jones no longer up for selection, the Australians lacked a bowler that could challenge the English batsmen with raw pace. As for the English, they left out Knight, Fielder and backup wicketkeeper Strudwick, with Arnold, Ralph, Foster and Bosanquay all making their test debuts. Warner called unsuccessfully at the toss, with Noble choosing to bat. Australia opened with Duff and Trumper, whilst Hurst delivered the first over. Both batsmen commenced with singles to the point boundary, with Warner positioning a deep fielder to limit the scoring of the two powerful openers. The next over was delivered by Arnold, who had Trumper top-edging a cut shot to Foster at second slip, who took the catch to dismiss the great batsman for one. Newman Hill started with a boundary to the leg side. Duff was then out in Arnold's second over, feathering an edge to Lilly to be out for three whilst Hill followed in the following over, caught behind off Hurst for five. The Australians were now at a precarious three for 12, as Armstrong joined his captain Noble at the crease. The two batsmen knuckled down, limiting all risk. They proceeded slowly with only 24 runs coming off the opening 21 overs, before Noble opened up twice, cutting Arnold to the boundary. Hurst, who had delivered 11 overs for eight runs, was then replaced by first Braun and then Bosanquay. Neither bowler was as frugal as their predecessor, with Noble in particular scoring all around the ground at will. This allowed the Australians to move their score on to 3 for 59 at lunch. Following the break, Armstrong nearly yorked himself off Braund, but managed to squeeze the ball for two. Noble continued to gather pace, scoring consecutive boundaries off Arnold. Hurst was brought back, but Armstrong responded by square driving twice to the boundary in the same over. This enterprising cricket saw the Australians bring up their 100. Noble soon after passed 50, made in just over two hours of batting, whilst the 100 partnership came up as Armstrong closed in on a half-century. However, the return of Bosanquay brought about the Victorians' downfall, bowling in for 48 with what the papers described as a peculiar ball, the Bosie had claimed its first test scalp. The 106-run stand had taken the Australians of 4 for 118 as Hopkins joined Noble. Hopkins began with a boundary off Bosanquay behind point, whilst Noble continued to build his score, although he was fortunate to have a miscued pool shot fall just short of Rhodes. Hopkins was also lucky to survive, as he hit a full toss straight to Bosanquay, who dropped the chance. The Australians were then able to go to tea with a score at 4 for 160, with Noble on 80 and Hopkins 20. Noble quickly moved into the 90s following tea, with two cuts for four off Ralph, whilst Hopkins also took advantage of some wayward bowling from Rhodes. After taking the extended time on 95, Noble brought up his century, his first in test, with a pull shot for four off Braund. He received a standing ovation from his home crowd, with another coming as a 200 was made shortly after. The return of Hurst brought about the dismissal of Hopkins, who played on for 39, having shared an 82-run stand with his skipper. Newman Howe could only manage five before becoming Arnold's third victim. This brought Gregory to the crease at 6-207. 20 minutes went by without scoring, before Noble ran a quick single to Hayward at point. Runs began to flow again as Stumps approached, with Noble taking three boundaries off Ralph, whilst Gregory flashed two boundaries off a wayward Rhodes. The 250 came up with Bosanquay brought back into the shadow of Stumps, this was a successful change, with Gregory bowled for 23. This ended the day with the Australians at 7 for 259. Noble remained undefeated on 132, heading into day two. The second day, a Saturday, saw 36,000 pack the SCG. Rain the previous night had affected the pitch, although heavy rolling meant that much of the undulations had been diminished as play began. Labor came to the crease to play at the last balls of Bosanquay's unfinished over from the previous evening, hitting an all-run four through the slips. After Arnold bowled a maiden to Noble, Rhodes commenced from the other end, trapping Labor LBW with his third ball. 
Newman Kelly started with three off-roads and then a leg-side boundary off Arnold. Noble, who had added one to his overnight score, then attempted a pull shot off Arnold. Foster, fielding at short leg, stuck out his right hand and snatched a difficult chance. And in the Australian captain's knock on 133, made in almost five hours with 16 fours. He was the ninth man out at 271. The final pairing of Saunders and Kelly added a further 14 runs before Rhodes dismissed Kelly to end the Australian innings on 285. Arnold was the pick of the bowlers with 4 for 76. The English innings commenced at 12.50 with Hayward and Warner opening. Saunders bowled the first over to Hayward, which was a maiden. At the other end, Laver had the English captain edging to the keeper off his third ball to dismiss him for a duck. He was replaced by Tildesley, who began aggressively, taking 11 off the first over he faced from Saunders, followed by three boundaries in the next over off Labour. Labour was replaced by Howe, whose first two balls were hit for boundaries by Hayward. Howe got his revenge soon after, bowling Hayward for 15, leaving the English at 2 for 45. Arnold came in and survived the five minutes to lunch, with Tildesley going to the break approaching his half-century. Following the break, Saunders began with a long hop, which Tildesley dispatched to the square leg boundary. His 50 came up soon after, but this was to be his last act as he was beaten by a straight ball from Noble having played for turn, only to be bowled for 53. His dismissal at 73 brought debutante Foster to the crease. Foster started well, driving Noble to the boundary. He was then lucky to survive two nervy shots off Saunders before taking eight off a laver over. The score moved forward steadily past 100 before Arnold was dismissed by Laver at short leg off Armstrong for 27, made in over 90 minutes of batting. Broad replaced him and managed to see through to T with a score of 4 for 135, with Foster having moved to 30. The batsman started cautiously after T, with Armstrong and Laver bowling tight lines. The score moved in singles past 150. The return of Noble saw the first boundary since the break, with Braun driving him to long off, whilst Foster brought up his half-century turning the ball to leg for a couple. He then hit a high ball off Saunders into the outfield, where Gregory made a great effort to reach the ball, only for it to fall out of his right hand at the last moment. This drop would prove costly. Foster and Braun then decided to up the scoring rate, as Noble cycled through his bowlers looking for a breakthrough, with seven bowlers being used at this point in the innings, including Hopkins and Trumper. No one was successful, however, and the two English batsmen managed to make it to stumps at 4 for 243. Braun had joined Foster in making a half-century and ended the day on 67 whilst Foster had made his way to 73, the drop chance already costing 22 runs. The English were in a strong position, trailing by 42 runs with six wickets still in hand. Following the Sunday rest day, the batsmen began with renewed vigour. They were more aggressive, with the runs falling freely. Braun launched Saunders back over his head, falling just short of being a six. Another big shot from Braun provided a difficult chance to Hopkins in the outfield, who failed to complete the catch. The two batsmen were now in a race to their centuries, which Foster won with a late cut off Labour to the fence. His century had taken almost four hours and he became the fourth Englishman to score a century on Test debut, after Grace, Ranji, and his captain Warner. Braun then brought up his own century, his second, with two consecutive fours off Howe, was then immediately bowled attempting a third such shot in a row. His 102 had been made in part of a 195-run partnership with Foster, a record for the fifth wicket to that stage of Tests. The partnership had taken the English into the lead, and now at 5 for 309, they would be looking to extend their 24-run advantage. New batsman Hurst was struck on the pad's first ball by Howe. The appeal was unsuccessful, but Howe beat his batter second time at the start of his next over and disturbed his stumps, bowling Hurst for a duck. The new batsman was Bosenquay. Noble replaced Laver at the bowling crease and was immediately successful, having Bosenquay caught by Howe for two. Lunch was then taken. Following the break, Foster was joined by Lily. 
Foster took 13 off the first two overs, whilst Lilly also found the boundary off Noble. He then attempted to loft him into the outfield, but Hill ran around to take a good catch, giving Noble his third wicket. This left the English at 8 for 332, a lead of 47. But with only two wickets in hand, the Australians felt good about limiting the deficit. Number 10 Ralph joined Foster, who was on 130 at this stage. Foster decided attack was the best option, taking his orders for consecutive boundaries before bringing up his 150 with a boundary hit that was just out of reach of a diving labour. Ralph started slowly, taking 20 minutes to get off the mark. Meanwhile, Foster went past a record set back in the first test as his score moved on to 166, going past Charles Bannerman's 165 as the highest score by a debutant. Noble rotated his bowlers, trying Armstrong and Labour before Hopkins had a turn. This nearly proved successful, as a full toss had Foster playing a false stroke, only for it to fall safely between three fielders. Ralph then got involved, hitting consecutive boundaries off Howe, bringing up the team 400. Foster then brought up another record of the highest test score in Australia, when he cut the previous record holder Gregory for three, taking his own score past 200. Ralph made his way to 31 before finally being dismissed, caught by Armstrong off Saunders. He chaired a 115-run partnership with Foster in an hour and a half, in English now 9 for 447, with T taken. After the break, Rhodes joined Foster, who was now on 203. He quickly went past the highest test score record, which had belonged to Billy Murdoch with his 211 in 1884, with the feat being warmly received by the crowd. Rhodes was no normal number 11, having scored a 1,000 runs in the last county season, and showed his class by striking two boundaries to start his innings. The two batsmen put on 50 runs in only 30 minutes, with the 500 coming up. Foster's hitting was so controlled at this point that he gave no chances to the Australians. He raced past 250 whilst the partnership went beyond 100. Foster eventually went past the Australians' first innings total on his own before he was finally dismissed for 287, with Saunders having him caught by Noble. His innings had lasted one minute short of seven hours and contained 37 fours. It remains the highest test score by a debutant, will be the highest test score for 27 years until Andy Sandham's 340 against the West Indies. The partnership with Rhodes, who was left 40 not out, had contributed 130, which remained the highest 10th wicket partnership for 70 years. The final two wickets had put on 245, taking the English to a massive total of 577 and giving them a commanding 292 run lead. The Australians still had 20 minutes to bat on the third day, with Gregory and Kelly opening. They managed to make it through without loss, ending on 16 not out, still trailing by 276 runs. With the test being played to completion, the Australians still held out some hope that if they could bat long enough, they could put together a total that could give them a chance of winning the game. With 10,000 supporters in attendance, Gregory and Kelly resumed their partnership. They moved the score on to 36 before Kelly played Arnold onto his stumps to be out for 13. Duff came in at number 3 and pulled the first ball he received to the boundary, which set the tone for his innings. Despite a few balls falling short of fielders, both batsmen continued to score quickly and brought up a 50 partnership in only 30 minutes of batting although most of these were coming from one end as Hurst was frugal with his bowling. The score moved past 100 as lunch approached when a change of bowling to Rhodes brought about the wicket, with Gregory edging behind to Lilly to be out for 43. Lunch was then taken with the Australians at 2 for 108. Following lunch, Hill joined Duff, who made his way to 42. Duff brought up his half-century soon after the resumption of play with a legside boundary off Braund. Hill moved comfortably to double figures with a series of singles to men posted in the outfield. Hurst and Arnold were tried, but caused little threat to the two batsmen, who were able to move to a 50-run partnership with ease. Warner continued to rotate his bowlers, with only Rhodes providing a significant threat. It would be him that would eventually provide the breakthrough, as he had Duff padding a ball to Ralph at forward short leg 
dismissing him for 84, made him just over two hours of batting with seven boundaries. He shared an 83-run stand with Hill, who was then joined by a trumper with a score at 3 for 191. Scoring from them was slow, moving only in singles, until T was taken with the Australians on 207, still trailing by 85 runs. Following T, Trumpet disappointed the crowd with very slow batting, taking 20 minutes before he reached double figures. This broke the shackles though, with Trumpet taking 9 off Hurst next over. Hill brought up his half-century shortly after. Warner then turned to the bowling of Braun. Trumpet cut the first two balls to the point boundary, whilst the third went for four byes. Another cut for a boundary came off the fourth ball, whilst the fifth was a dot. On the final ball, Trumpet drove to the mid-off boundary with a ball pulled up just short, where the batsmen were able to run four. When the throw from the boundary just went wide of the stumps, Trumper called Hill through for a fifth. However, Hill had run 10 metres past the stumps on the fourth run and struggled to make his ground to beat the throw from Ralph. The stumps were broken just as Hill was making his ground. However, the umpire gave him out, much to the displeasure of the spectators. The booing from the crowd continued for such a time that Warner walked over to protest their actions until new batsman Noble exited the pavilion, with the two captains walking to the centre together, quelling the crowd uprising. Hill's unfortunate dismissal for 51 had left the Australians at 4 for 254. Despite the loss of Hill, Trumper once again attacked Braund, taking the first four balls of his next over for boundaries, bringing up his 50 in the process. Braund was replaced by Arnold, who Trumper hit for four behind point, wiping off the deficit for the Australians. At the other end, Noble batted cautiously, content to let his club teammate dominate. Trumper continued to attack the bowling, hitting most bowlers tried for boundaries and bringing up his century to wild applause. The only bowler who could contain him was Rhodes, who was miserly to the point that Trumper was heard to exclaim, For God's sake, Wilfred, give me a minute's rest. At this point, Noble attempted to hit Bosanquay, but missed and was stumped for 22, made in just under an hour. Armstrong replaced him at 334, and the two batsmen were able to see through the stumps with a score at 5 for 367. Trumper was on a glorious 119 and looked to be the key to extending the Australians' lead of 75 to a match-winning total. Day 5 began with Rhodes bowling to Armstrong, who was on 14. Rhodes was uncharacteristically loose, with Armstrong hitting him for 11 off the first over. At the other end, Trumper began cautiously, with his first 7 runs coming in singles. Eventually, Rhodes had a ball catch the edge of Armstrong's back, which was snaffled by a diving Bosanquay at slip. Armstrong departed for 27 with a score at 393 to be replaced by Hopkins. Hopkins was busy and took the Australians past 400 with a late cut. Trumper moved to his highest test score, passing the 135 not out he had made at Lords in 1899. Soon after, he passed 150 with a fine off-drive to the boundary off Hurst. Warner returned to the bowling of Rhodes, who again secured the breakthrough, with a wide ball too tempting for Hopkins to ignore, only for him to find Arnold in the covers. Hopkins had added 20. Labor came in to replace him with a score at 7 for 441, a lead of 146. Trumper continued in an attacking vein, was able to move on to 171 by the time lunch was taken. Following the break, Laver could only manage to make it to 6 before he was caught off roads, giving the Yorkshireman his 5th of the innings. Howell started with a boundary, but was caught in the next over without further addition to his score, whilst last man Saunders was run out when he was slow to set off for a Trumper call. The Australians lost their final wicket at 485, a lead of 193. Trumper stood undefeated on 185, made him just under four hours with 26 fours and did not give the English a chance throughout his epic. For the English, Rhodes' effort of 5 for 94 was reward for 40 overs of toil where he was the only bowler who could contain the great Trumper. In game of such high scoring on an excellent pitch, the total of 194 that the English required for victory was not seen as a large one. However, the pressure of chasing would give the Australians some hope of snatching an unlikely victory. 
Hayward and Warner started cautiously, only scoring 19 runs in the first half hour. Most of these came off Noble, who was then switched for Saunders. At the other end, Howe bowled five consecutive maidens. In his six over, he managed to bowl Warner off his pads at eight. Tilsley replaced him, but required a runner due to an injury suffered during the game. He scored at a much quicker rate, and the total moved to 39 as the first hour of the innings closed, before Tildesley misplayed a ball from Saunders to Noble at point and was dismissed for nine. The bowling continued to be tight, with new batsman Foster taking 80 minutes to get off the mark. Labour relieved Howe, who had bowled 15 overs for seven runs, and was immediately hit for four by Hayward. This released the shackles, with Foster striking two boundaries in the next over from Saunders. Hayward continued to bat confidently, but Foster was struggling, unable to find the middle of the bat like he had in his record-breaking first innings. After an hour in the middle, he was tempted from his crease by Armstrong and was stumped for 19, with a score now of 3 for 81. The Australians then broke through again in the next over, with Newman Braun out for a duck off Howe. The match was now evenly poised with the English still requiring 112 for victory. It could have been even better for the home side, but Laver dropped Hurst's first ball at short leg. This would prove costly. After a period of four successive maidens by Armstrong, Haywood would bring up his 50 whilst Hurst began to hit out, finding the legside boundary with regularity. The runs required would drop below 100 as Stumps approached. With only a few overs remaining, Hurst was again missed, this time by Hopkins. When Stumps were drawn, the English had made their way to 4 for 122, with Haywood on 60 and Hurst 21, only requiring 72 for victory with six wickets in hand. The Australians would need early breakthroughs on day six to have any chance of victory. However, a cautious start of six singles in as many overs allowed the English to play themselves in. Following this, both batsmen began to finding the boundary. Hurst in particular took on an attacking role, hitting Labour for a six after surviving an LBW shout from the same bowler. As the runs required reduced, most focus was on if Haywood could reach his century. He required 12 runs from the final 16 to reach the mark. He began with a three to take him into the 90s, but was then stumped off Saunders whilst trying to hit him over long off. His 91 included six fours and set the English up for victory. Hurst, who had shared a 99-run stand with Hayward, then scored 12 of the final 13 runs required to win, taking his score to an unbeaten 60 and giving England the victory. They would take the 1-0 lead to the second test in Melbourne, starting on New Year's Day 1904. The Australians felt the need to strengthen their bowling after the result in the first test. As such, they sent an SOS to Hugh Trumbull. Trumbull had played first-class cricket since the tour of South Africa, but had made a surprise appearance for the Melbourne Cricket Club in early December. Trumbull managed to secure annual leave from his employer, the National Bank of Australasia, to make himself available for selection. Trumbull took Labour's place in the side. There was even a move to make him captain, but after a vote of the players, the captaincy remained with Noble. For the English, Arnold had suffered an injury to his leg and Warner was reluctant to risk him. Furthermore, just before the game, Bosanquay was struck on the finger from a Hayward drive. The pain was so much that he struggled to turn the ball, let alone hold a bat. Their places were taken by two debutants, fast bowler Arthur Fielder and batsman Albert Knight. Warner won the toss and chose to bat. Local hero Trumbull opened the bowling for the Australians and was loudly cheered by the large crowd. English openers Warner and Hayward started slowly, with only 12 runs coming in the first 20 minutes. Noble, who had started at the other end, removed himself from the attack after six overs, struggling with an upper arm injury. This would prevent him from bowling again in the rest of the match. He was replaced by Saunders, who was immediately hit to the boundary by Warner. Hayward was then missed when Kelly fumbled a stumping chance off Trumbull. Armstrong and Howe were also tried before the break, but the two batsmen progressed safely to lunch without loss on 55. After lunch, Armstrong was causing difficulty to both batsmen with his leg breaks, with Warner choosing to play him almost exclusively with the pad. 
The score moved in singles before a boundary from Warner off Howe broke the shackles and took the English captain up to his 50. Hayward followed soon after as the score went past 100. Hopkins then took a turn at the bowling crease and finally secured a wicket, with Hayward being caught in the covers for 58. Ten runs later, Warner lifted the ball from Trumbull over the head of Duff at mid-off, only for the fielders to run back and take a good catch. The England captain departed for 68, made in almost three hours, leaving his side at 2 for 132. This brought Foster to the crease to join the not-out batsman Tildesley. The two managed to get to tee, with the score now at 141. Clouds began to gather as the game resumed, but the English proceeded brightly, taking advantage of a good wicket and a tiring bowling attack. They mostly proceeded in ones and twos, but they were more active than the openers and looked for any opportunity to score. The two batsmen were able to take the score past 200 with little difficulty. Here, Foster gave a chance, edging into the slips off Hopkins, where Trumbull failed to complete the catch. The two continued on for a while before successfully appealing against the light, leading the players to leave the ground just before a thunderstorm commenced. The English ended the first day at 2 for 221, with Tildesley on 46, and Foster one short of his half-century. Overnight rain delayed the start of play on day two until the scheduled lunch break. When play resumed, Tildesley was accompanied to the crease by Braund. Foster, who had been suffering from tonsillitis prior to the game, was now unfit to play. He would remain 49 not out and take no further part in the match. With the pitch now playing tricks, both batsmen decided to attack. Tilsley started with the four to long off off Trumbull, bringing up his half-century, whilst Braun hit Hopkins for the consecutive boundaries through mid-off. Saunders, usually a top performer on wet wickets, was tried, but failed to have an impact. Noble's fields restricted the batsmen somewhat, with their best shots mostly going for singles. Finally, the pressure built and Braun top-end Trumbull to Howe fielding behind square. He was out for 20 with a score of 277. New batsman Knight took a single first ball, but was then bowled in the next over from Howe for two. He was replaced by Hurst. Tilsey continued to build his score, moving into the with a boundary off Howe. Hurst dealt in singles, moving to seven before he hit a ball in the air towards Noble off Howe. The Australian captain dived forward and just got his hand out of the ball, with the umpire confirming this when Hurst questioned the legitimacy of the catch. His replacement Rhodes could only manage two, helping take the score past 300 before he was adjudged LBW by Trumbull. This was the last act of the day as rain began to fall again. England had managed to move on to 6-306, with Tildesley three short of a century. Heavy rains fell across the Sunday rest day and continued on the Monday morning. Play was delayed until 10 minutes before the scheduled lunchtime. Lily joined Tildesley at the crease. Immediately, Tildesley steered a ball from Hale to Trumbull at slip and was out for his overnight score. His 97 included eight fours and taken almost four hours to compile. New batsman Ralph managed to get through to lunch, but following the break, Lilly and then last man fielder were dismissed quickly, with one wicket going to Trumbull and Howell apiece, both men finishing with four wickets for the innings. The English total of 3 and 15 was a middling one considering the start of the test, but on the saturated pitch was now an imposing mountain for the Australians to climb. The Australians started with Trumper and Duff, whilst a Yorkshire pair of Rhodes and Hurst opened the bowling. Strudwick acted as a substitute fielder for Foster. The Australian pair started in a hurry, with a quick single to Duff, followed by Trumper hitting Rhodes back over his head for a boundary. Duff then struck Rhodes for four to the leg side. Soon after, though, his aggressiveness was his downfall, as he jumped out to Rhodes, only to miss and be stumped by Lilly. He was out for ten with a score at 14. Newman Hill hit his first ball from Hurst for four, but was out after adding only a further run, miss hitting a ball to mid-off from the same bowler. Two for 23 then became three for 23, as Noble was out for a duck popping a ball from Rhodes to Silly Point, where the subfielder took a diving catch. Gregory held on for a 10-run partnership with Trumper, was then out for one, becoming Rhodes' third victim. 
Hopkins joined Trumper and for a while both successfully attacked the bowling. Trumper twice drove Hurst to the boundary while Hopkins pulled Rhodes to four. This saw the 50 brought up with just over an hour of batting. Ralph replaced Hurst but Hopkins hit him through the slips of three while scoring the same off Rhodes. Eventually, Hopkins' aggressiveness saw the end of him as he top-edged one from Ralph to square leg where Strudwick took the catch. The partnership had put on 34 in 17 minutes but now left the Australians at 5 for 67 with Trumper having scored half that amount. Trumbull and Armstrong fell for 2 and 1 respectively to Rhodes, giving him his 5th wicket of the innings. Kelly was able to hang around for longer, allowing the team 100 and Trumper's 50 to come up, but when he was run out for 8 with the score at 105, the Australians were still 11 short of the follow-on target with only 2 wickets in hand. Warner then dropped Trumper at point. Trumper made the most of his life by lofting Rhodes over the side screen for 6. Soon after, a drive for 2 off Braun took the Australians past the follow-on. Howe was then caught off Rhodes for a duck. Last man Saunders managed two as Trumper took his score on the 74 before he was caught in the fence. Rhodes claimed the last wicket to finish with a superb 7 for 56 off 15 overs, having bowled unchanged. Trumper 74, made in just under two hours with two fours and a six, had helped avoid the follow one. The Australians still trailed by 193 on the first innings. The luck for the Australians was that conditions were still horrible for batting in the final hour of the day. This was compounded for the English as both openers were out with only seven on the board, with the wicket apiece to Trumple and Saunders. Tildesley and Braun combined to put on 20 runs, with Tildesley looking most comfortable by hitting boundaries to leg off both Trumble and Saunders, before Brown was clean bowled for three by Saunders. New batsman Hurst began with a boundary to mid-off off Saunders, whilst in the next over Tildesley launched Trumble over the side screen for six. Trumble was then replaced by Howe. Off his first ball, Kelly missed stumping Hurst. Gregory dropped him on the second, but made up for it on the fourth by completing a catch, dismissing Hurst for four. At 4 for 40, Rhodes came in to join Tildesley. Tildesley continued in an attacking style, hitting Saunders to three boundaries in an over. Rhodes also found the boundary off Saunders as Stumps approached. Trumbull returned to bowl the last over of the day and had Rhodes LBW for nine off the fourth ball. Tildesley had made his way to 48 not out as the English ended day three on 5 for 74, a lead of 267. Another heavy shower overnight drenched the ground, meaning a game play wouldn't start until after lunch. The Australians began strongly, with Trumbull having new batsman Knight and then Lily out for ducks before a run was added. Ralph joined Tildesley, who soon after moved past 50. Tildesley played a cat and mouse game with Trumbull, finding gaps before his luck eventually ran out, with Hal having him caught in the slips for 62. His innings included six fours and two sixes. The final wicket partnership of Ralph and Knight took the English past 100 before Trumbull claimed his fifth scalp when he had Knight caught. Ralph was 10 not out as the English innings ended on 104, sending the Australians a target of 298 for victory. Duff and Trumper opened for the Australians, whilst Rhodes and Hurst commenced for the English. The second ball from Rhodes cut back sharply to nearly bowl Duff, but he eventually got off the mark with a single, followed by five runs in the over off Hurst. The first ball Trumper faced from Rhodes was sent straight back over his head for six. However, before the innings was 10 minutes old, Duff fell to Rhodes, caught it slip by Braund, giving the left armour his 50th test wicket. He was replaced by Hill. Both batsmen went for their shots, finding boundaries and racing the score along. Hill was lucky to survive a drop chance at mid-on and backed up with another boundary to square leg. The total raced past 50 and the two looked to be putting the English on the back foot before Hill was out for 20, caught it long on off roads. Noble came to the crease at 2.59 and continued in the same vein, hitting Rhodes to six back over his head. Trumper looked set to continue with his efforts from the first innings, moving to 35, although he has dropped twice on the way. However, that was as far as he would get, caught in front of the grandstand off roads trying for another six. 
Trumpers dismissal for 77 ended the last of the major resistance from the Australians. Noble would stand strong for over an hour, compiling 31 not out, but wickets tumbled consistently at the other end, with no other batsmen reaching double figures. Hurst would claim two of the final seven wickets, whilst the remainder went to Rhodes, who demonstrated his mastery on the wet pitch by taking 8 for 68, giving him 15 for 124 for the match. This was the third time that the bowler had taken 15 wickets in a test match, after Briggs and Lohman had done so against South Africa. The Australians were dismissed for 111, giving the English victory by 185 runs and their second win in succession. This is the end of part one of our episode covering the 1903-04 tour by England. Part two, where we'll see if the Australians can come back from 2-0 down, will be out shortly. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.